This podcast is brought to you by everythingvoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. Liberty Classroom is the premier online university for libertarian and free market thought. Take courses from your computer or while driving in your car. To sign up for Liberty Classroom, please use my special link at libertyclassroom.info. That's libertyclassroom.info. If you're new here, let me tell you what this podcast is all about. It's about voluntarism, free markets, peaceful parenting, radical unschooling, and much more. Thank you so much for listening, and please enjoy. Hello again. Welcome back to the podcast. It's uh, June 15th, a Monday, beginning of the week. Let's kick off this week with a continuation of the Economics 101 miniseries, as well as the Wizards Rule, Wizards Rules miniseries. So um, in the last installment of both of these, we talked about uh, relative versus absolute prices. And we talked, as far as Economics 101 and with the Wizards rules, we talked about Wizards' sixth rule, which is the only sovereign you can allow to rule you is reason. So we're going to go into um, the next one for Economics 101, which is going to talk about discrimination as an economic concept. And then we'll read Wizards' seventh rule, which is out of the book by Terry Goodkind, Pillars of Creation, which uh, was also a fantastic book. I, I enjoyed all of them. All right, so right now, for these first, um, I don't know, nine or ten installments, we're actually using a little series written by economist Walter Williams titled Economics for the Citizen. So I'll probably continue the Economics 101 miniseries after we finish these and just find some other source material. But because I think economics is such an important, uh, it's such an important field to understand and to learn and to have a proper understanding of so much. I mean, probably one of the, uh, one of the biggest things wrong <laughs> with the world today is not enough economics education. But anyway. I guess I'm doing my small part to alleviate some of that. All right, so let's uh, start. We're going to go Economics for the Citizen Part 7, and I'm just going to read through it, through it, and I'll give some commentary. All right, he writes, There's a reggae song that advises, If you want to be happy for the rest of your life, never make a pretty woman your wife. Mechanics have been accused of charging women higher prices for emergency road repairs. Airlines charge business travelers higher prices than tourists. Car rental companies and hotels often charge cheaper rates on weekends. Transportation companies often give senior citizens and student discounts. Prostitutes charge servicemen higher prices than their indigenous clientele. Gasoline stations on interstate highways charge higher prices than those off the interstate. What are we to make of all of this discrimination? Should somebody notify the U.S. Attorney General? Yeah, let's get right on that. The fact that sellers charge people different prices for what often appear to be similar products is related to a concept known as elasticity of demand. But we won't get bogged down with economic jargon. Think about substitutes. 
take the reggae song's advice about not taking a pretty woman as a wife. Pretty women are desired and sought after by many men. An attractive woman has many substitutes for you, and as such, he can place many demands on you. A homely woman has far fewer substitutes for you and cannot easily replace you. Hence, she might be nicer to you, making what economists call compensating differences. All right, now... Before you get your panties in a wad, <laughs> this is just this is just an example to demonstrate. All right, um, I mean this this whole series I think was originally written in um, I don't know fifteen years ago or so. So I don't know. All right, it's all a matter of substitutes for the good or service in question. Business travelers have less flexibility in their air travel choices than tourists. Women generally see themselves as having fewer alternatives for emergency auto repairs. A man might have more knowledge about making the repair or be more willing to risk hitchhiking or walking. A prostitute might see a sailor on shore leave as having fewer substitutes for her services than the area's residents. Motorists traveling from city to city are less likely to have information about cheaper choices than local residents. Politicians seem to ignore the fact that when the price of something changes, people respond by seeking cheaper substitutes. New York City raised cigarette taxes, thereby making a pack of cigarettes $7. What happened? A flourishing cigarette black market emerged. Just as a little aside, um, because it's relevant at this time here in June 2020 in regards to the protests against police brutality, um, this is an interesting example because there was a gentleman named Eric Garner who was choked out and killed by New York City police for uh, selling um, what what were called, uh, I don't know what they were called. They, ha- they have a specific name, but they're basically individual cigarettes that were brought in from outside of the city and sold on the street. So he was selling drugs in a sense, but they were just totally legal cigarettes um, outside of New York, but he was selling them for cheaper because cigarette taxes are so high. And of course he was approached, and I don't, I don't remember all the details, but at some point, the police, I mean, he was a big guy. The police officers had him on the ground and one had his, his arm around his neck and he choked him out and died. That happened a couple of years ago. So just an interesting, interesting and, and very unfortunate aside, I guess. Um, okay, let me go on. In 1990, when Congress imposed a luxury tax on yachts, private airplanes, and expensive automobiles, Senator Ted Kenny, Kennedy and then Senator Majority, Majority Leader George Mitchell crowd pub- publicly about how the rich would finally be paying their fair share of taxes. But yacht yacht retailers reported a 77% drop in sales, and boat builders laid off an estimated 25,000 workers. What happened? Kennedy and Mitchell simply assumed that the rich would behave the same way after the imposition of the luxury tax as they did before, and the only difference would be more money in the government's coffers. They had a zero-elasticity vision of the world. Namely, that people do not respond to price changes. People always respond, and the only debatable issue is how much and over what period. This elasticity concept is not restricted to what are generally seen as economic matters. It applies to virtually all human behavior. When a parent asks his child, how many privileges must I take from you to get you to behave, that's really an elasticity question. In other words, how high must the punishment price be for the misbehavior in order to get the child to take less of it? It's easy to see how... Elasticity applies to law enforcement as well. What must be done to the certainty of prosecution and punishment to get criminals to commit less crime? All right. I lied to you at the beginning. I was mistaken. I said this would be about 
discrimination. And I, I guess in a sense it is, but it was really about elasticity of demand. So I apologize for that and I'll, I'll fix it in the episode title. Anyway. Um, yeah, I think that's very interesting. Elasticity of demand. Um, you usually, you usually always have substitutes. Now, the less, uh, competition there is in a particular industry, the fewer substitutes you'll have. So as, as a voluntarist, as a free market guy, uh, there should not be any barriers to competition imposed through government decree, through legislation, through re- so-called regulation. Right. And even, and even what, even when what we're saying is, is stuff like, uh, uh, well, I talked about this, this in another podcast recently about, uh, when I read my earlier article about, uh, consumer freedom, right? We talked about, well, should, should the consumer be allowed to choose from a, a non license, a set of non licensed businesses or practitioners next to a set of licensed? Absolutely. I mean, I think the state government can set up a list of requirements and say, if you want our particular stamp of approval, our particular seal that you can present to your customers or potential customers that you meet uh, our approval, that we consider your business or, or service or goods to be safe, then you must meet these requirements, but it's not legally required, in which case People can then, and, and even entrepreneurs can decide. Well, maybe maybe these uh, this set of requirements is not is not so um, is not so good. So we're gonna we're gonna create our own set of requirements and offer our own uh, you know seal of approval, right? And and thus private accreditation begins. And that that should be that should be fine because now I as a consumer can see doing my homework, doing my due diligence. If I'm gonna buy from you, I'm getting quotes from three guys. Two of them are, or one of them's licensed or has the seal of approval by the government. One of them has a private seal of approval and the third doesn't, excuse me, doesn't have any seal of approval. I'm also going to look at their portfolios. I'm going to see, you know, examples of work that they've done. Perhaps the third guy that doesn't have any license or any private accreditation uh, comes highly recommended from a very good friend of mine. And I've seen his work firsthand. Well, guess what? It's an even playing field. All three of these guys are competing with one another. And if it turns out that actual experience and actual work is more important to your average consumer than somebody's seal of approval, then that guy's going to make a lot of money. And maybe fewer people will be wasting their time and wasting their money on going after these, uh, these approvals, whether public or private. And as a consumer, I will have that, that, that many more substitutes of where I can spend my money. So Anyway, I talked about that in that episode, so I won't, I won't continue down that road. But um, there were a few other economic concepts he talked about here, compensating differences. That's when maybe you're not able to quite do what somebody else can do, but you can do some other stuff that are possibly just as valuable. So maybe in, in the example he, he gave, you're not as beautiful, right? So you don't offer whatever beauty offers and hotness, but... You know, you've got some other qualities that make you very attractive for somebody who's gonna, you know, gonna spend the rest of your life with somebody and start, presumably start a family and, and, uh, bear children and so on and so forth. And it's, it's the same for men. I mean, this goes both ways, right? This isn't a, a misogynist or a sexist thing because as a woman, you can look out and you can see, well, there's this really hot guy. Maybe he's even really strong, but let's say he's dumb and he's, he's not gonna, 
be able to pull in six figures like this other guy who's maybe an accountant or a lawyer, but he's, he's not very attractive, but you know, he's going to take care of you. You know, making, making those considerations is just as valid, right? You can make considerations. It's all personal preferences and some personal preferences aren't any more valid than another. And it's, it's not about misogyny or misandry or anything like that. It's just, these are my preferences. They're arbitrary and personal and subjective. And when, when looking for a mate, what do you want out of that mate? And, and guess what? Everybody else is going to do the same thing to you and they should. And that's fine. All right. Okay. All right. Well, that's it for part, part seven, I guess. And I'll put, um, elasticity of demand, I guess, in the, in the title instead of discrimination. I don't know why I thought it was discrimination. I must have read just the, be- the first part and, and thought that's what it was. Anyway. All right. Let's go on to wizard's rules. This is wizard's seventh rule. And this is from Terry Goodkind's Sword of Truth fantasy series, which is a fantastic series. Uh, Terry Goodkind, my, my understanding is he's a libertarian, I believe, of the objectivist uh, Ayn Rand camp, um, which actually, you know, is very similar to my own thinking in a lot of ways, particularly particularly all the various themes that are covered throughout the series. I really enjoyed it. Um, so this is from... Book seven, if you remember book six, which is Faith of the Fallen, was just a fantastic demonstration of what happens with command and control economies versus versus more freedom. I mean, it, it's just a, in, in sort of a medieval, like I said, medieval fantasy magic genre type. But anyway, just, just probably the best book of the series, I'd say, um, as far as that goes. All right, this one is really good. And, it, and it's, it's also... <laughs> because I'm doing my other podcasts, the thinking and doing, and I'm, I'm studying stoicism and it's always these, these sort of smaller, I mean, there's, there's longer ones, but there's also a lot of smaller little nuggets of stoic wisdom that I come across. And I'm realizing as I'm kind of reviewing in my head, these wizards rules that, that these are in, in, you know, either directly or indirectly influenced by a lot of different stoic teachings. And I think this is one of them. So this is wizard's seventh rule. And it goes, life is the future not the past. So there's a little uh, commentary here with it. So let me read that and then let me, I guess, add my own. It says, the past can teach us through experience how to accomplish things in the future, comfort us with cherished memories, and provide the foundation of what has already been accomplished. But only the future holds life. To live in the past is to embrace what is dead. To live life to its fullest, each day must be created anew. As rational thinking beings, we must use our intellect, not a blind devotion to what has come before, to make rational choices. There's a there's a lot. So that's the end of that commentary. There's a lot that this uh, brings to mind. Um, this is not the only thing it brings to mind. This is this is just one thing I'll I'll touch on here real quickly. Right now, again, we're in June 2020 with the protests going on against police brutality and as well as against uh, racism and racial injustice. And what has been happening the last few years along that theme is that some of the, or many of the statues in the Southern states of the United States, statues of men who were themselves slave owners and they were probably generals or politicians or who knows what else, but they were also slave owners. And so what's, what's been happening is people who are protesting against racial injustice are, 
attacking these statues and, you know, either vandalizing them or pulling them down and smashing them. And that's kind of an interesting thing. Now, there's, I think, people of good will and people of good intent on both sides of this debate on whether or not these statues should be pulled down and smashed or whether they should be simply just moved to a museum or whether they should just be left where they are. Now, as um, somebody who believes in property rights, my first question on anything like this is who owns the statue? Okay, whoever owns the statue should decide what happens to it. Some uh, rioters and vandals coming by and destroying it is not right. Okay, you may not like the statue, but that statue is not your property. All right, if the statue is sort of, I guess, public property, then you know property rights or ownership is not as clear. And you know, if the people tearing it down are the people who have been taxed for its maintenance, then maybe they're the rightful owners. And okay, but at the same time. There's probably other people who have been taxed and also have just as much a claim to ownership as the vandals do, and maybe they don't want it pulled down. So there's there's obviously a problem here created by the institution of public property. It should be privatized, and then the, the private owner can decide what happens to it. Now, the reason I bring up this example be, is because the rule here, the wizard's rule, is life is the future, not the past. If we're focused on on these monuments to what amounts to the past, and in this case, the very shameful past, the past of of slavery, and we're just you know we're putting all our energies on attacking that past, then what are we doing about the future? I guess you could say, well, we pull down these monuments to slavery, and then that gives us a brighter future. Okay, maybe. It's one way to look at it, I suppose. Life is the future, not the past. Um, okay, something else that this this brings to mind here. Uh, let me kind of read through this commentary again. That's when I, I got it, because now I'm not there. To live life to its fullest each day must be created anew. As rational thinking beings, we must use our intellect, not a blind devotion to what has come before to make rational choices. Oh, the other thing this brought to mind is the idea, and I'll, I'll probably do an episode on this at some point, but the idea of postmodernism. Now, I think that postmodernism, now personally, I have not read any of the source material. Uh, Michel Foucault or um, the other uh, people who sort of created postmodernism, can't recall their names right now. I do have some of Mich- uh, Michel Foucault's work on my wish list on Amazon, so at some point when I get through my current my current reading material, and my shelf full of stuff that's ahead of it, um, I will purchase that stuff. But from my understanding, and this mostly comes from Thaddeus Russell and all the times he's talked about what postmodernism is, which I find to be a very different thing than when guys like Jordan Peterson talk about postmodernism and attack it, I don't find that they're talking about the same postmodernism. So, I mean, if you ask Thaddeus Russell, he'll tell you, and he had a debate with a guy on it once, he'll tell you that these guys who are attacking postmodernism, many of them have admitted to never reading the source material. I don't know if that's the case with Jordan Peterson. I I would hope not with as much influence as he's had. Um, but at least during the debate that Thaddeus Russell had, I forget who he debated with. It was uh, one of the reason, one of the reason debates, um, 
the Soho Forum debates, Gene Epstein's uh, thing. Anyway, the guy that he was debating with was was really not so much attacking what Thaddeus Russell was talking about when it when it comes to how how postmodernism looks at things, looks at the world, which I'll get to in a second. But he was attacking more the some of the conclusions that guys like Foucault and Derrida, that was the other name I was trying to remember, um, some of the conclusions they made about things like socialism and communism and stuff. So what my understanding, and again, this is all, I guess you could say secondhand, but I mean, what's not secondhand, right? <laughs> um, is that postmodernism is, I don't know what the right word is. I've always, I've always used the word um, strategy, I guess. I don't know if strategy is the right word. Or postmodernism is a way of approaching, it's a way of approaching truth claims. Okay. And not so much the claim itself, that's part of it, but, but approaching why the claim is considered true. Okay. So let me give you an example. If somebody were to say that and, and this is this is an example that Thaddeus Russell has talked about a lot, particularly on the Joe Rogan podcast. They got into it quite a bit. And he didn't convince me totally on what he was saying, um, but I, I, I understood what he was saying. But the truth claim that they were talking about was the existence of different races among human beings. Okay. So the truth claims that there are black people, there are Asian people, there are Indian people, there are Native American people, there are white people, there are Hispanic people, right? Like as if these are objective, um, these are objective separations in, in who people are. Either you're a black guy or you're a white guy. You're one or the other. Like it's very binary. It's very this or that. So that's, that's the truth claim that they're is such a thing as race, right? So what postmodernism does, it says, okay, this is an interesting truth claim. Let's dig deeper. And it's, and it's, and it, and it is very much a, a skeptic, a skeptic, a process of skepticism. Uh, in my, in my view, skepticism is not simply to doubt, but it's to dig. Okay. Skepticism is, so we could say skepticism and postmodernism are kind of very similar or, or if not the same thing in this sense. So let's dig into that truth claim. Where does it come from? And a lot of what they talked about was take any, any given, any, any, any particular of that truth claim. Let's just say these, these people qualify as black people. Well, when you look in, when you look backward, okay, into the past, what you see is a change. Okay. So if this was an objective truth claim, there wouldn't be a change. Okay. There are igneous rocks. There are the different kinds of rocks. I can't remember the other two sedimentary rocks. And those have specific objective qualities and they don't change, okay, over time. And it would seem that way with, with race, right? It would seem that, you know, once you're a race, your race is your race. It's an objective biological thing, right? It, it seems that way. But that's the truth claim that, uh, we can, we can, we can, uh, investigate. So, and I know this is a really long tangent. We're, we're many steps away from the, the wizard's rule, but I'll get back to that. I promise. Um, so, okay. Black people today, when I say black people, you think, um, 
you know, African Americans. You know, some people would probably argue with whether or not you should include Jamaican, Jamaicans within that race. Okay. Jamaicans, I think, consider themselves kind of separate from African Americans. They take, they take umbrage. They take offense to being called African American versus Jamaican. Right. But I would probably just looking at them think, Oh, well, you have really dark skin. You have, you know, African features. You're a black guy. But I guess, and I haven't really dug in. This was, this was more coming from Thad, Thad Russell. But in the past, there were other people who were considered to be part of that, um, black race or to be considered niggers. Okay. Um, and I, I guess he, he would include at some point Italians were, were considered to be part of that and Jews were at some point considered to be part of that. And they were considered to be part of pretty much part of the same race. So really what, um, the point of that is we can say today there is the black race. There is the white race. There is the Asian race or in the, in the past it would have been called Oriental race, right? But the question is if that, if, if those, if those considerations change over time and they weren't always as they are now, then maybe race doesn't exist. Maybe race is socially constructed. Maybe race is a social construct. Maybe it's not a biological thing. Now, we could, we could look at people's DNA and we could say based on, you know, this and that in your DNA, you come from people, your ancestors were born in this part of the world. Right. I think we can say that. And, but even that is sort of changing. The more examples of human DNA they get into that database, the more refined that gets. Okay. The more they go to indigenous populations and people who they know to be, I guess you could say more purely from that part of the world. Like, for example, Conan O'Brien does the, the 23andMe test and his comes back 100% Irish. Okay. I mean, does that mean he's 100% Irish? Well, maybe, but also based on the amount of Irish that they've tested. Yeah. He's got everything for them to conclude right now that he's 100% Irish. Now they could get some markers from some other populations later on that ends up maybe bringing that down to 99, 98. The point is race in, in large part, maybe not entirely because obviously we can look out, we can see different we can see different skin tones. We can see different facial features and we can say, well, these fa facial features and this skin tone is predominantly from this part of the world. And the reason it's from that part of the world is because of these environmental factors, right? It's closer to the equator. So your, your skin produces more melanin to protect you from harsher uh, sun radiation. But then at the same time, the world has become smaller People have left where their ancestors are from and they've mixed with other peoples. And so a lot of people are just, they're not really a specific objective. 100% you're this race. It's just not. You might be 70% of African descent and 30% of European. You know what I mean? So when we say black people or in the past, when you use that racial, that racial epithet that I used, to whom are you referring? Okay. Now, people who use that today may be referring to just people who are of African descent. And, but in the past, they've used that to refer to Italians and Jews and, and who knows. So this idea of 
Um, oh, yeah. So the part I was reading about where as rational thinking beings, we must use our intellect, not a blind devotion to what has come before. To me, that's the postmodernist quest. Whatever the truth claim is, let's just dig deeper. Here's one more example. Let me give you one more example. There's this truth claim today that everybody, most people seemingly accept that ideas are a form or can be a form of property. Okay, If you have an idea, a novel idea, and you put it down in writing in the form of a, a work of fiction, or you put it in uh, a, a work of music, or you construct it, you engineer it in the form of a, a new invention, then that idea, that pattern of information that constitutes that idea is ownable. Okay, It may be assigned as property and you may be assigned property rights over that idea. Okay. Today that's called intellectual property. Now I don't, I don't think he knew he was doing this at the time, but Stefan Kinsella, who is himself a patent attorney, but he's also a, an anti-intellectual property theorist. When he was becoming a patent attorney, he decided to dig deeper into where patents originated and where copyright originated. Okay, not only that, but there's a there's a bit in the United States Constitution that says the government may issue patents and copyrights to um let me you know what let me find it here. So okay, it's uh, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8 to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Okay, today people look at ideas at, like they look at real property. Okay, you own your house, you're the owner, which gives you exclusive right of control relative to anybody else. It's your idea, it's intellectual property, you should have exclusive right of control relative to anybody else. Okay, so there's been this marriage between ideas which are non-scarce, everybody can hold the idea at once, and real property, which is scarce, not everybody can can hold my house at once. They can have their own house, but it won't be this house that I'm sitting in right now. Therefore, it's scarce because, you know, there's there's um, not enough of it to go around. Ideas are not scarce because they're infinitely reproducible. Everybody can hold it in their mind at the same time without, effect, without having effect on anybody else. But what happened over the last probably 100, 150 years was this sort of marriage and welding as this term intellectual property was sort of created. Now, it wasn't always that way. And I think the Constitution is evidence of that. It says to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Okay, it's not talking about intellectual property as it concerns real property. It's not talking about that. It's talking about simple grants of monopoly by the state for authors and inventors so that, you know, in order to promote them creating their stuff. Okay, it's not talking about property. Property is nowhere in that clause. It is talking about a government or constitution granted monopolistic privilege over particular writings and discoveries. Okay, so at the beginning, and this is where Stefan Kinsella, he, he dug into this to say, why, why is it we call it intellectual property today and we, we treat it like any other property? Where does that come from? Well, he may not have realized it at the time, but he was engaged in postmodernism. By digging into that truth claim and finding where it came from, he was uh, he was not he was not being blindly devoted to what has come before. 
So that's kind of where postmodernism connects with this, at least that particular bit on that commentary. So it's kind of a couple couple degrees of separation away from the rule itself. But just, just some thoughts I have. Life is the future, not the past. This also reminds me, and I've, I've talked about this on this podcast recently as well, when it comes to problems that we have here in the Collins family household between people or between kids, I tell my kids when one of them comes and says, somebody, somebody did such and such, you know, and they like to use this, this blame, the blame game, blame, they want to blame. Now in my family, we don't punish. Punishment is not a practice, is not practiced here. To me, it's pointless. It's useless. It's counterproductive. So we don't do it. And because we don't do it, blame is not important. So what I do is I say, well, what happened? You give me your version. You give me your version. Let's talk about why one of you disagreed with what happened. It, it went counter to your own preferences. And then because life is not the past, as the rule goes, life is the future. Let's take from this the important lessons, the wisdom. Let's move forward and try to be better. Okay. Let's understand how our actions may have, may have contributed to the negative feelings of others. Okay. I don't like saying that actions cause feelings. I think feelings are, I mean, your initial reaction can be one thing and it's certainly inspired by, or could be, can be expired what somebody else does. But after that initial reaction, what you do, how you feel, and this is a stoic teaching is your responsibility. It's not theirs, but it's important to understand how our actions may be taken by other people. So let's, let's explore all of that. Then let's learn from it. Because like this rule says, life is the future, not the past. So I really like that, how that connects there as well. Okay. All right. That's going to be it. So uh, elasticity of demand, we talked about economics 101. And we talked about wizard's seventh rule, life is the future, not the past. Thank you so much for listening. And please have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by visiting patreon.com forward slash EVC or paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Thank you. Thank you.